In Christ's name, amen. I want to begin uh, with a dream of a man named John. John dreamt that he was standing at the edge of a dock overlooking the ocean one day when a stranger walked up to him. And he said, John, I have something for you. And he held out a ring. And he said, John, as long as you hold on to this ring, you will have perfect happiness, perfect contentment, joy, and satisfaction. As long as you hold on to this, you will have the best life possible. And he gave it to John. John was elated. I mean, as you can imagine. <laughs> and he put it on his finger, and, and life, was un, life was bliss. It was unbelievable. But the first stranger, he walked away. And soon after, another stranger emerged from the shadows and stood next to John on the dock. And when the stranger spied the ring on John's finger, he, he laughed a little bit. He says, you really think that ring is going to bring you perfect life, joy, and happiness? What, are you an idiot or something? And this second stranger began to mock John for daring to believe that that could be true. Began to make him feel like a fool and like an idiot. And really, if he was smart at all, he'd just rip that thing off his finger and throw it into the ocean. Well, eventually, after a while, the second guy was getting to John and he began to believe him. And so, in a fit of anger, he pulled the ring off his finger and he threw it into the ocean. And the moment that ring sank beneath the waves, the second stranger turned to John and said, you just threw away perfect joy and happiness, you idiot. Ha! And with a mocking laugh, the second stranger left John in despair, knowing that he had had it all and he had just thrown it away. I don't know what it's like in your story or in your story or in your story, but most of us have had that experience of throwing something good away. You know, we had it good, but as the proverb says, the grass always seemed greener on the other side. And in our attempt to get that, we ruined what we had. And this idea plays out in, in society all over the place, whether you are a seven-time Tour de France champion who threw it all away because you were cheating, whether you are a politician or a comedian or an actor who, while drunk, said something you ought not to have said, and he threw it all away. I don't know what it is, but I was telling this story uh, to someone who woke up on our property uh, a couple weeks ago, and I just mentioned to them, we as humans are really bad at actually choosing and holding on to the things that would actually bring us happiness. And they're like, oh yeah, they understand it. And see, I have, I have hope for people, for, for you and for the people who find themselves waking up on our property early in the morning, that you would have something better, that, that the life that you're living would be good, satisfactory, joyful, and resilient that the way that you're living would endure beyond whatever calamity comes your way. Because many of us woke up when, have woken up at times to realize that everything we've been working for was ultimately empty and not worth the price we were paying for it. And I want better things for you. And so my hope this morning is to help you to hold on to what is truly good, to find real satisfaction and real joy, and to not give up 
on God's blessings that he would bring into your life. Because this is the story of the scriptures. The Bible says that the God who created heaven and earth is good and wants to bless people. He wants to give us good things. And we won't let him. Because we hear what he says is actually good for us. And, you know, like a stubborn five-year-old, we're like, yeah, you know, this other thing sounds better, God. And because we refuse to listen to and trust that God is actually good, the world is the way it is. And our lives are empty and full of <laughs> violence and mischief and pain and suffering. And where we're at in the Bible right now, we are going through the Torah. We've gone through the first four books of the Bible. We are concluding the fourth book now, and then we're going to finish the fifth book. This is the Torah of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. And it is a grand story, again, of this creator God who is good, not giving up on his plan for the world. And even though people won't listen, he is committed to working through human partners to bring his blessings into the world, and it's all coming through the descendants of a man named Abraham. Well, in the book of Numbers, which is a really boring name in English, I much prefer the Hebrew name, which means in the wilderness, because that sounds way cooler. Uh, Numbers begins with a generation of Israelites. They used to be slaves. God rescued them. He brought them out into the wilderness and sustained them, entered into a relationship with them, and now they are ordered and prepared to go into the promised land, this special place that God wants to give them. And they got to the verge of the promised land, and they looked over into the land, and it kind of felt like this. And they went, you know, God, all the people in that land are big, scary, and way too powerful for us. We would rather have died in the wilderness than go in there. And God says, if that's the way you want it, okay. And so the book of Numbers tells the story about how an entire generation of Israelites, because of what they chose, died out in the wilderness. And now here at the end of the book of Numbers, we're in like version 2.0. Their kids have grown up and are ordered and prepared and are on the verge of the promised land looking in. And they know the character of the God that they're serving, and it's kind of like, all right, bring it on. And so we come to Numbers chapter 33, verse 50, and it says, on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, this giant military fortress city, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, because you will, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images, all their cast idols, and demolish all of their high places. Now, if you are a normal, modern-day American, this raises a flag for you. And I don't know what to do other than to acknowledge that these texts about the Israelites driving out the land of Canaan have been used to justify all sorts of corruption and evil throughout human history. I think that is a misuse of the text, but... That's what people have done with the Bible. So flag it. We'll talk about it later. Um, it's not the main point. But if I were to say it like this, if you were the rebel alliance, drive out the evil empire, we'd have an easier time with this idea. These people don't stand a chance unless God gives them the land. And God says, you've got to go in, make the people move out. And the things to destroy and demolish are everything that worship other gods other than me. Get rid of it. 
You're going to take possession of the land and settle in it because I have given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. All right. Has any of you guys made major life decisions by flipping a coin or rolling dice? Anyone? Okay. If you're not sure what the lot is, this is how people used to do it. They would draw straws, roll dice. It would some like random chance kind of way of making decisions, but the understanding was that though it seems random to us, this is how God is going to direct and lead us. So we're going to divide up a land and inherit things based on what God gives. We're going to trust him. To a larger group, you're going to give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. And whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes, thorns in your sides, and they will give you trouble in the land where you live. All right, we read those words, and they don't seem so bad. So let me just remind you about the last time you had something in your eye. Because I still remember being a high schooler, learning contacts, and this one day something was in my eye, and all I can do is just cry and try to force my eyelids open and stare into the most bloodshot eye you've ever seen and try to like, what is in there? A week later, again, working with contacts in the mirror, I say, what is that? Because I see something down in the corner of my eye, and I open my eyelids, and I reach over, and I slide a contact back into focus. And what had happened to me was that a contact had flipped all the way back to the rear of my eye and gotten stuck there. Yeah, I see you guys cringing. That is what a barb in your eye feels like or a thorn in your side. And God says, if you don't get rid of these people, they're going to be like that. It's going to be miserable. But worse than that, not only are they going to give you trouble in the land where you live, he says, if you let them stay, eventually, implied from the rest of the Torah, you're going to become just like them. And I'm going to do to you what I plan to do to them. You're going to drive them out, but if you don't, eventually you will be driven out of this land. If you don't take care of this, if you don't listen to me, there's nothing special about you. You two are going to have to go. And here we have an echo of the story of the Garden of Eden. So if you're familiar with the story, once again, you have the good God who's made a good space, and he's bringing his human partner into it and saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land and subdue it, meaning there's an inhabitant in here you're going to need to kick out. And if you don't, you're going to be afflicted with thorns and eventually exiled out of this good land I want to give you. And if you don't know what any of that means, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it later. Chapter 34 begins with the Lord saying to Moses, command the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, the land that will be uh, allotted to you as an inheritance, it's to have these boundaries, all right? <clears throat> it's fixed. And so north, south, east, east, and west, here is the picture of what land God is giving them. So this is what it looks like on Google Maps, all right? The land of Israel. This is what it looks like in my Bible. They said this is roughly where the different tribes received their inheritance. And if you want to know how big it is, it's about as big as if you drew a line from the coast to Sandy and you went south to Grants Pass. All right, this is the land of Israel. It's right there. It's right in the, you know, 
the intersection between three major continents. And God says, this is the special land that I've chosen that I want to give to my people. All right, but it's not very big. Now Moses commanded the Israelites and said, assign this land by lot as an inheritance and give it to the nine and a half tribes. So Israel, a guy used to be called Jacob, renamed Israel, had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes. And two and a half of them decided they don't want land in the promised land. They want it on the other side of this Jordan River because it looks really good. And so God says, all right, you can have it. And nine and a half will get this other land. Divide it. Here's 12 guys who are going to help make this happen. Then get to chapter 35. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to give the Levites towns to live in from the inheritance the Israelites will possess. If you go back to this, sorry, I'm going to go back here. There's no tribe of Levi. There's no land that belongs to the Levites. The story is that this particular tribe chose God instead of land with their brothers. Yahweh is their inheritance. And so while they're moving around in the wilderness, this is a tribe that protects and guards the tabernacle. But once they move into the land, their job's going to change. And now they're going to be scattered abroad with cities. And God says, here are the boundaries of the cities, which are really confusing. But essentially, every city the Levites get, the town will be in the center, a thousand cubits, ancient measurement, about 18 inches. So go 1,500 feet out from the walls of the city in every direction with about a 3,000-foot frontage on each side. That's the border of a Levite town, and that's going to be really important because we're going to talk about cities of refuge. So 42 cities plus 6, and in verse 9 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge or cities of asylum, if you will to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may run to. They're going to be places of refuge from the avenger, so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. Okay. So before 911 was a thing, before police forces were a thing, justice was, man, you wronged someone in my tribe, I'm coming for you. You know, you kill my brother, I'm going to go kill you. You know, and there's this blood for blood kind of idea. But you can imagine how violence could escalate. And pretty soon something happens, and the next thing you know, you have Hatfields and McCoys going on. Or the Capulets and the Montagues. And crazy three-day romances that end in suicide. But no, sorry, that's Shakespeare. This is the Bible. All right, but this was, this was the idea, is that, you know, tit for tat. And... What God says is, you got to be careful, because if something accidentally happens, we need to stop bloodshed from escalating. So appoint places of asylum. It's like the safety base when you're playing tag as a kid, all right? When you're out there, you're vulnerable, but the moment you make it to base, you are safe until you can go stand trial. All right, these six towns you give will be cities of refuge, three on one side of the Jordan River, three on the other side of the Jordan River. And there are going to be a place of refuge for Israelites and foreigners, like anyone in the town, in anyone in the land, sorry, uh, who has been killed, who's killed someone else accidentally can run there. Now, again, this is 
This is to protect those who do it by accident. So just to remind you, if anyone strikes someone a fatal blow with an iron object, that person's a murderer, and the murderer must be put to death. Suppose it was a stone, well, still a murderer. Suppose it was a wooden object, still a murderer. And if it was, you know, we would say assault with a deadly weapon, you are a murderer, and the avenger of blood is going to put the murderer to death when they come across him. In addition, if you, with malice, shove someone or throw something intentionally or strike them with your fist so they die, if you're using deadly force on someone, you're a murderer, you're going to be put to death. But suppose you push someone suddenly, but you, you didn't, it was just something you did. You weren't intentionally thinking of how to harm them. Or you chucked something, not looking at what was downfield. Or you accidentally dropped a large rock on someone and they died. Well, in that case, since you weren't an enemy and you didn't try to harm them, verse 24, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. If it's an accident, you don't deserve to die. It was an accident. In our current legal system, we'd say you committed manslaughter not murder. And the assembly is going to protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of refuge to which they fled. All right, so if you killed someone in my family, it makes sense that I'm kind of upset about it. I'm going to come after you. And if you did it intentionally, God says justice is life for life, blood for blood. But God says, if it's an accident, then all of you, your job is to keep me from avenging myself because it wasn't intentional. So after trial, after we've made sure that this person did not murder someone intentionally, you guys protect them from me and they get to go back to this city of asylum. This is what justice looks like. And the accused has to stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Even though you didn't mean to, There's consequences and and the ripple effects of what you've done. Something needs to be done about it. You don't get to come home. It was an accident. Your life will be spared. But we don't get to go on pretending like nothing happened. So you live in exile in a city of refuge until uh, the high priest, someone who has been anointed, uh, christened, or or in Hebrew, Mashiach. Okay, you don't get to come home. The guilty doesn't get to come home until the Messiah died. And then the guilty get to come home. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city, so those legislations about like 1,000 cubits and 2,000 cubits, why is that really important? It's because if you cross that line, you're going to die. So pay attention. If you ever go outside this boundary and the avenger of blood happens to find you and they kill you, they're, they're innocent. It's your own fault. You have to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may they return to their own property. And this is to have the force of law for you throughout the generations to come wherever you live. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. No one's to be put to death on the testimony of one witness. It's about justice. It's about fairness. We're going to seek out the evidence. All right? We're not going to lie to one another. One one witness is not enough to put someone to death. 
But if they are guilty, do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. They are to be put to death. Don't accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge. And so allow them to go back and live on their own land before the death of a high priest. Do not pollute the land where you are. Because bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Blood's a big deal. Life is a big deal to God. And somehow, some way, the Bible says there is an intrinsic link between us and the land itself. And if someone is killed and it goes unanswered, the land itself will be polluted. Now, I don't know everything that God means by that. But I heard a story about a visiting dignitary from a, uh, from a nation in Africa that's like upstream in the Nile River. And he traveled down to Egypt. And he's walking along the Egyptian delta. And you have this very fertile place where the Nile, the Nile River spills out into the Mediterranean Sea. And he reaches down and he grabs a handful of dirt. And he says, this is the soil of my people. Because in his land, there is no uh, law and order established. And you have rival, rival um, not gangs, but... Um, what was it, tribes? Tribes, warlords, territories, different militia groups, the, the word is escaping me, who are fighting. And the thing is, in his land, is that any farmer who wants to actually like, cultivate the ground and shore up the embankments of the hills so the topsoil doesn't run into the river, if you have anything, well, someone with a gun's going to come and take it from you. And the net result is that there's no farming, there's no irrigation, there's no development why? Because there's so much injustice and bloodshed in the land that everything that could grow crops is just being flushed away, washed down the Nile River, and ends up in Egypt. It's just one story that shows that like bloodshed unanswered will literally corrupt the ground. And again, I'm not sure that's exactly what they mean, but here's a modern day story. God says, don't defile the land where you live and where I dwell. Because I, Yahweh, dwell among the Israelites. This is the most staggering truth claim. That this small nation of slaves says that the God who created heaven and earth has come to live among them. And that is special and that is precious. Don't defile the land. I love America. And man, we have a lot in the way of possessions. But sometimes our language, we just... Well, I get, sorry, I say we have terms to express things, but we don't use them in everyday conversation. The word defile is first used in the Bible to describe what happens when a young woman is raped. She was innocent and she was pure and someone defiled her. And it's, it's a tragedy and it's horrendous. Don't, don't go messing with this land. It's, pre it's precious. It matters to God. You live here and I live here. Don't let murder go unanswered. Justice needs to be done here. Now, after asserting justice and the need for certain boundaries, Numbers concludes with one more story, kind of on a more positive note. The family heads of the clan of Gilead, who was he? Well, he was the son of Machir. Who was he? Oh, he was the son of Manasseh from the clans of the descendants of Joseph, son of Israel. They came and they spoke to Moses and the leaders, the heads of the Israelite families, and they said, you know, back in Numbers 27, when the Lord commanded my Lord 
to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot. He ordered you to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. You guys remember that story? There's one guy in Israel, and in that day and age, the custom was only sons can inherit land. But there's these five daughters of this guy named Zelophehad who has died with no son. And they're like, what gives? This would be unjust. Our father's name will be forgotten. And so they come to God and say, God, there's a problem with your instructions, with your laws. There's a gap. Let us inherit land. And God says, you're right. Give the girls land. If a guy dies with no sons, his daughters inherit or his nearest relative. So on that note, we have updated this law once. And now, now here's some fellows coming to talk about it. They said, suppose these daughters. Suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes. Well, then their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. Like when they join in marriage to someone, all their stuff will become his too. And that will be land from our inheritance. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. And when the year of Jubilee comes, their inheritance will be added to the tribe into which they marry, and their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our ancestors. Like, if they marry someone outside of the tribe, our tribe will be reduced, and that feels unjust too. So what do we do? Well, then at Yahweh's command, Moses gave this order to the Israelites. You know what the tribe of the descendants of Joseph are saying is right. This is what Yahweh commands for Zelophehad's daughters. They can marry anyone they please as long as they marry within their father's tribal clan. Here's why. Because no inheritance in Israel is to pass from one tribe to another. But every Israelite shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. So every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of their ancestors Again, no inheritance may pass from one tribe to another, for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land of their inheritance. Or this is how we hold on to the good things that God has given us. This is how we don't throw it away and we don't lose it. We keep it, in this case, within the family. And Zelophehad's daughters, they did as Yahweh commanded Moses. <laughs> we're like, thank God. Because throughout the book of Numbers, we've, we're kind of tired of hearing all the people not obey God. But these ladies did it. Mala, Tirzah, Hagla, Milka, Noah, their names recorded in scripture multiple times. They married their cousins on their father's side within the clan of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's tribe and clan. Now these are the commands and the regulations Yahweh gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. This is the end. And you're like, that wasn't a very satisfactory ending. And I would just point you to the second installment of any trilogy, and to say this isn't supposed to be the end, all right? We got one more book coming to bring this section of the Bible to a full close, but this is the end of the book of Numbers. And it began with the Israelites ordered and ready to enter the promised land, and it ends with the Israelites ordered and ready to enter into the promised land, and in the middle is just rebellion after rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. But what are these final chapters all about? I say they're all about Israel being prepared to receive and to maintain their inheritance. Here's how to get what God wants to give you, and here's how to keep what God wants to give you. And throughout this passage, we have all sorts of echoes of Eden and the story of Cain and Abel and the flood. If you remember, 
Again, the story of Adam and Eve. God plants a garden, a special place. He puts a man and a woman there in the garden. And then an inhabitant in the land convinces them not to trust God. And so rather than being blessed there, they're kicked out and they experience thorns. Then you have the story of Cain. He was the first murderer in the Bible. He murders his brother and God says, Cain, I'm going to keep people from avenging the death of Abel. I'm going to spare your life. Cain doesn't trust God, and so he goes and he builds a city for himself, a walled enclosure where he can be safe from those who want to avenge him for the murder of his brother. God has his own cities of refuge, but, but Cain builds one. And then Cain's descendants grow up, and that's where cities get their start. They're places where humans thrive and multiply, and cool things come from cities like art and industry and technology, and not-so-cool things come from cities like violence and sexual immorality. And eventually, uh, bloodshed and violence and sin piles up so high that God says, I've got to deal with this. And so God sends the flood. And that's the story of Noah. What we're giving here, getting here at the end of the book of Numbers is God giving the Israelites ways of keeping this land clean. Here's how you are to deal with bloodshed in the land. Because, warning, if you don't deal with it, I'm going to have to deal with it. And you're not going to like that at all. All right? It's kind of like a a parent telling their kids, look, you clean this room or I clean this room. But if you make me do it, you're not going to like how it results for you. See, in order to thrive in Yahweh's land, the people of Israel need to drive out the inhabitants, destroy the idols... Have God's chosen leaders divide the land by lot according to their ancestral tribes, appoint cities for the Levites and cities of refuge to keep the land from being polluted by blood, and ensure that property doesn't get transferred between tribes. Essentially, like in order to thrive here, you guys need to love the fact that God is present among you, and you need to respect the boundaries that God has put in place. All right? Here's the land. Here's where you guys are going to divide the land. Here's the limits of the city. Here's what needs to be done about bloodshed. And then here are the boundaries for like marriage and inheritance to keep these boundaries intact from one tribe to another. It's like Moses telling the Israelites that you're going to go in and you're going to be faced with future decisions to trust in God. But if you don't do what he says, you're going to turn into just the kind of people he's currently judging. And that's going to hurt really badly. But living in light of God's commands and prevent will prevent the destructive flood of justice and bring blessing. So again, just what's it about? A bunch of regulations you guys wouldn't otherwise normally read if it wasn't in the Bible. I'd say Israel is being prepared to receive and to hold on to to maintain their inheritance. And so for us, family of grace, I would just say in order to be blessed, we need to know how to receive and to keep God's good gifts. Because if we don't know how to hold on to it, things are going to go badly. And our life is full of stories of people who had it all, and they threw it all away. Take Jack Whitaker, for example. Does anyone remember that name sound familiar? Nope? Okay, cool. In 2002, Jack Whitaker won the $315 million Powerball. It was the current largest single lottery winnings in human history. He took a single cash withdrawal, so after taxes... That turned into like $113 million. And everyone thought he would be set for life. Only he wasn't. 
because he didn't know how to manage that kind of money. Most of us don't. And he squandered it on being gregarious and loose women and all sorts of other things. And people stole from him. And his life went south. And so less than 20 years later, he's broke and, and died kind of being scorned by the rest of the world because he, he had it all and he lost it all. And this story is pretty common for people who win large financial windfalls. We're not very good at holding on to these things. So how do we, family leaders, how do we not throw away what God has given us? How do we receive God's blessings and not lose it all? Now at this point, I'm going to pause and say, I have some good news for you. You can't. You can't throw it away. And to tell you why, I'm going to return to that story about the guy named John. See, John's dream, it didn't end there. As he's there on the dock in misery, collapsed because he had life and happiness and joy available to him, and he threw it all away. And now it's gone beyond his reach. The first stranger came back. And when he saw what John had done, he says, let me help you. And the first stranger dove into the water, was gone for several minutes, and he came back up with the ring in his hand. And after climbing onto the dock, he says, John, if I give you this ring back, you're going to throw it away again. You, you are not to be trusted with your own happiness, with your own security. So here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to hold on to it for you. And anytime you want it, you come and you see me. And John woke up. Now, I don't know how much John made of his dream at that point. John was a captain of a ship, uh, but not a very good ship. It was a slave ship running African slaves between Great Britain and Africa. Later on, um, John, reflecting on this story, realized that this was Jesus in his life. He became a Christian. He became a pastor. Uh, later, you might know him, John Newton. He wrote the song Amazing Grace, one of the most popular songs in, in human history. John realized that he can't be trusted with his own happiness, his own security. Jesus can be trusted with his happiness and security. And that's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that God wants to bless humanity, and we refuse to receive God's good gifts, and so God needed to do something. And so in the fullness of time, God came and was born as a human baby and lived a life on our behalf. Jesus, God's anointed son, the Messiah, died in order that the guilty might be able to come home. And Jesus has ascended into heaven, and one day he's bringing our inheritance with it. And so the Apostle Paul and Christians throughout the ages have realized that because Jesus has our inheritance, we can't lose it. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things to come, nor things present, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation could separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It is secure, and you can't lose it. So if you are a Christian this morning, be comforted. Because the goodness that God is going to bring into your life is beyond your ability to screw it up. <laughs> Thank God. Um, if you're not a Christian this morning, I just warn you, like everything that you are living for will end in death. The career ladder that you're climbing will probably not fulfill you. 
The, the money that you're chasing will never be enough because human history is full of people who are a lot more rich than you or I and money was never enough for them. And it can be stolen from you, it can be taken. If you want real security and real joy and real something that will be resilient beyond any sickness that comes your way, any tragedy that befalls you, I have no other hope to offer you but Jesus Christ. And I'd say believe in him. Now that being said, and I don't know how to pivot from this because any like but or however makes it seem like that awesome good news is less than it is. No, like that's just awesome. But to go in a different direction perhaps. The fact remains that there are yet blessings that God would bring into our life that we do have the choice to screw up, that we can lose out on, whether that's, that's a reward because we've squandered the gifts that God has given us, or if that's just even in this life, God calls us to live wisely in line with the way that he has planned the world, and we can ignore his directions and suffer the consequences. Just like if you're driving on an icy road late at night, in the rain, and you insist at driving at 120 miles an hour, it doesn't matter how much you love Jesus, you're probably going to die or hurt somebody. There's still a choice. So this morning, I want to help bless you by encouraging you to not throw away the good gifts that God might want to give you. And to encourage you to do that, why? By loving God's presence among us and respecting the boundaries God has put in place. All right, in, in five different areas drawn from our passage this morning, through the areas of worship, sexuality, marriage, contentment, and justice. Worship, you know, don't worship any gods in the land. Instead, drive out those people. Why? Because this is where God is going to bring you and give you this gift. All right, sexuality is not directly tied to our passage this morning. It's just the only other place in Leviticus 18 in the Torah that I know of um, where God talks about the land being defiled is through the immoral sexual practices of the people who currently live there. So if you want to be different and you want to stay in the land, don't live like the people that I'm kicking out. Or marriage. You can marry anyone you want, but only within certain limits. Or contentment. Will you receive what God has to give you? Or justice. Will we protect the innocent, but also bring justice in the land? So just briefly to address these things. When it comes to our worship, God's presence is with us as Jesus followers. And we are not called to drive people out of a physical land. I say most of the time. Actually, I did have to wake some people up this morning and say, you, you can't sleep here. So, But th that's not the right response. Really, like, no. Why? Because God has a different plan for us. This is something he did for the Israelites 3,500 years ago. For us, God's presence is now in his people, and what we're called to drive out is sin in our hearts. Evil and impurity and the things in us that rebel against God and his ways, like kick that out. Among the church, we drive out sin. And it doesn't mean that we, we kick out people who screwed up, and it doesn't mean that we're mean and vindictive, but it means that if you are a Jesus follower and you are living in persistent sin contrary to the ways of Jesus, we will lovingly say, hey, this isn't the way of a Jesus follower. And if you persist in going in this direction, we will finally acknowledge what you have made all too abundantly clear, that you don't know the gospel. And so we're going to treat you like a non-believer, which means we're going to start telling you about Jesus all over again. All right? But this church, this place where God gathers, is to be a place of purity, where certain behaviors just don't belong. And what we do as a community is to call people to Jesus. This is ways 
These, these are ways that we worship. When it comes to sexuality, you know, for Christians, we just acknowledge that sex matters to God and that it's a profoundly spiritual act used by God to bring a man and woman together. It is a uniting act out of which life can be birthed. We say sex matters to God. Our world thinks too much of it and too little of it. You know, they, they make it a complete identity statement. Like your, your sexual appetites can utterly define you. When we say that, that's making too much of sex. On the other hand, our world says, that's ah, just a physical appetite to be sated. And we say, no, it is a sacred, life-giving event. And so, you know, we, we look at homosexuality and within the Jesus community, we say this doesn't belong. Why? Because this relationship ends in death. Like no life can ever be generated from this act. God designed this to, to use to bring fruitfulness and multiplication to the world, and we are living contrary to his ways. Again, we don't hate people who want to do this. We just call them to follow Jesus and say, that, that won't ever bring life into the world. God has better plans for it. All right, these, are, these are boundaries that God has put in place, and we want to respect them because God lives with us. When it comes to marriage, you know, uh, Moses calls the daughters of Zelophehad like anyone you want within a clan. Later, Paul will call a Corinthian church. Hey, if you're married and your husband dies, if you're a woman, you can marry anyone you want. Just marry in Jesus. It's just, it's a boundary within which there's freedom. Now, family of grace, you know, you singles, legally, I mean, you can do whatever you want, but I'll just tell you, it's stupid to marry someone who's not a Christian. Why? Because I want you to be blessed. Now, I'm not going to guarantee that you will have marital bliss if you marry a Christian. Some of us are real idiots. Um, but I will promise you that if you are a Christian and you marry a non-Christian, you are signing yourself up for trouble because you are engaging in an intimate relationship with someone who has a completely different foundational belief about ultimate reality. How do we make decisions about right and wrong? What is money for? How do we spend our time? How are we going to raise our kids? And like, that's just trouble. So again, I would spare you trouble in saying if you respect the boundaries that God has set in place, you will be blessed here in this life as well as in eternity. Or how about contentment? You know, the Israelites experienced their allotment of land. One of the Ten Commandments is don't desire anything that God has given to someone else, your neighbor. You know, the secret to contentment, satisfaction, and happiness is to realize it doesn't matter what the grass is on the other side. If I can be happy with what I have right now, I'll be happier than like 99% of the rest of the world. Satisfaction now, just to rest content without constantly thinking the what ifs, to say, God, thank you for what you've given me. I don't deserve it. Can I just be grateful right now? And, and it will bring far more peace into your life and far more, you know, satisfaction than constantly looking at what other people have that you don't. And it's hard. It's hard. Because um, we live in, in a day and age where people are out to get whatever they can for themselves. I found out this morning our, our church was broken into Saturday morning, and that was a very disappointing thing. And yet, we're blessed. We're safe. I have food in my stomach, clothes on my back, and I have a safe place to go home to at night, and we're able to worship here. They didn't take anything that was essential. We're okay. 
Thank you, Lord. And then justice. Do we realize that like justice matters to God? Right relationships between people. God cares about it, but it's also messy and complicated. There's no easy way out if someone dies tragically and it was your fault, even if it was an accident. Like, how do we, how do we make something like that right? And yet justice matters. Or, or in our day and age, to pick a different complicated, messy uh, justice situation, what do you do when you have too many people who have valid claims to water rights when there's not enough water to go around? When you have third-generation Native Americans who say this land in our treaty belongs to us, and you have people who just spent their life savings and signed themselves up through a 30-year loan to say this is where I get to live. I don't know. I, I just don't. Justice is not easy. It's complicated, but it matters. And as Christians, life is sacred. Life matters. People matter. And so broadly speaking, okay, no murder, please. Don't murder people. <laughs> if you're a Christian... If you ever hear about a Jesus follower who picked up a gun or a knife or went on a rampage or ran into a crowd of people with, you know, a vehicle, I'll say they are not following Jesus. In fact, they they are directly disobeying what Christ has commanded. They are not living into their Christian identity. We value life. All right, abortion. No, we say life matters always. But also, we can go further than this and we can say, for us, we won't make money on destroying other people. The longer that our church is here on 124th and Burnside, the angrier I get at the people who are selling drugs. I used to get angry at the people who are doing drugs, and, and I'm still disappointed sometimes because they are ruining their life and they think it's okay for them in society, and it's not. But more and more, I'm, I'm becoming increasingly incensed at the people who are providing these things, who are selling some of the most potent narcotics the world has ever known to young men and women and ruining their lives because, well, I can make money on it. Mm -mm. We don't make money on other people's misfortunes. No Christians make money by calling up elderly people and scamming them out of their life savings. All right, there's some really broad categories. You know, no Christian is going to be a mercenary gun for hire willing to kill people to make profit, all right? Like, just absolutely not. But then we go down, down the ladder of abstraction and say, what does it mean for me in my current situation to to treat people fairly and justly, whether, whether I know them or not, to say I'm not going to take advantage of the vulnerable in this situation, but I'm going to do right by them. How do we go out of our way to love people and to protect life? How do we make refuges and places of safety where we can at least hear what's going on and give people our full attention and before we cast judgment? Like what if the church was a, a place of refuge? You know, what if, what if people in the community could come in and experience love and mercy without being prejudged for everything they've done? You know, what if the Christians in your life were known by being wise and discerning people who actually were able to look at evidence and, and tell whether or not this thing is true or not, and we didn't believe everything we read on Google, um, but that we were discerning and being able to judge between what is true and what is not? Like, what if, what if the church was known for being, having a good head on its shoulders? Like, what would that be something? How do we be people of truth and love and grace and mercy and justice? How do we fight for the rights of those who are vulnerable? Again, it's not easy. But these are, these are the ways to a blessed life and to a blessed community. And I wish I could promise you that if, if we did all of these things perfectly, 
that we would find true happiness, contentment, joy, and, and mercy. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that I can't guarantee that. But Jesus did say that anyone who follows him and gives anything up for his sake will experience a hundredfold in this life and in the age to come, sorry, with persecutions. I got to include that one. And in the age to come, eternal life. It's worth it. I just don't have anything better for you guys to do. Like, if we love God, respect his presence among us, and, and respect his boundaries, then at least we can say is that we will be spared from all sorts of trouble that other people have to deal with. Because you hear the story about the man who left his wife and his teenage daughter to go hook up with another lady. And then he realizes the wrong that he's done, and he wants to come back, only to find out that his girlfriend's now pregnant, and now he's stuck. And now everyone's life is a mess. And you wonder just like, what if he had just like listened to God and not done those things? How much better would it be for him and everyone else? All right? I would, being, I would have blessings be in your life because you're listening to God. But this morning, I hope that we would know that God has secured our inheritance for us. I mean, thank God. We can't screw this up because Jesus has it for us. That Jesus, through his death, has made a way for us to come home to experience the, the, all the good things that God wants to give to us. And I hope that we can wait in hopeful expectation because <laughs> we're not home yet. This world is not as it should be. One day it will be. So family of grace, may we discover the blessings that come from loving God's presence and respecting his boundaries among us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, would you help us to trust you? Father, it's hard. We live in a world where people are saying all kinds of things and honestly, sometimes we're just confused out of, your mind, out of our minds. We don't know always what's true. We don't know how we should live, and yet we would attend to you and to what you have spoken. Would you help us to respect the boundaries that you've put in place so that we can be blessed, so that we can live, so that we can thrive? And Father, through our life together, would you draw more and more people into life with your son? Because God, we want to see your blessings come to all the nations in the world. And Father, when we screw up, because we will, and when we don't trust you, because we won't, and when we cross those boundaries, because, oh, that's just bound to happen. I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for your mercy, and I thank you for your justice. That because of what Christ has done, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, would you, would you just save us, even this morning, again, from all our stupidities, and would you establish us uh, in the good things that you have for us? Amen.